Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Poulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. The parable of the talents must be heard in the context of Matthew's storyline. Jerusalem is about to fall. Jesus has repeatedly warned everyone to make ready for the end. In American terms, the market is about to crash forever. The makers of widgets and the economy that supports them are doomed. In this context, only a fool or someone who has not read Matthew, is that a tautology, would take the parable of the talents as advice on how to engage people to build a better marketing plan. Quite the opposite. Matthew's story is a cautionary tale against trusting in mammon which is of little use in light of chapter 24. So why do we repeatedly blaspheme Matthew's teaching by using his parable to talk about material things like stewardship and building programs? For the same reason our society belittles teachers and worships the merchant class. Because given a choice between God and mammon, we choose mammon. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 19 to 23. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 386 of the Bible as Literature podcast. The time for the accounting has come in the parable. The master is about to return. And I want to go back to a point we made last week. The metaphor that is at work in this example in Matthew is the story of a manager who is trying to decide how much work to give his slaves. That does not mean that you can take the parable of the talents and use it as an example in your management book. We are not talking about how to make widgets. I want to keep making this point because the worst thing you could do in terms of the kingdom, and the most exciting thing you could do in terms of pleasing Satan is to take a parable of the kingdom and use it in the service of widgets. Please hear the word of God, and it will only function for you as the word of God if you hear and obey what God is asking you to do. There's no daylight between the hearing and the doing. If there's daylight between what you hear and what you do, that means it is not functioning as the Word of God. 
That is the fundamental difference between Hellenistic philosophy, where people get excited about a philosophical logos in and of itself, and the scriptural debar. There is no divorce. I love the title of C.S. Lewis's famous work, The Great Divorce. There is a great divorce between the doing of God's will and the rebellion against it. There is no divorce between the command of God and the doing of his command. If you don't do it, the command is not functional, and we are not talking about the Gospel of Matthew. There's no Gospel of Matthew in abstraction as an intellectual endeavor. So either we're talking about the parable of the talents, which means we are doing what it says, or we're talking about widgets. I have to say this, Rich, because I know the minute we give the example of the manager assigning work, someone's going to go to the local store and say, guess what I learned about how we're going to run our team today? And that is not what we're doing. What is being deposited in the parable is the instruction to do the commandments of God. Nobody talks about this parable in the context of where we find it, which is, be ready, be ready, be ready, because Jerusalem is about to be overturned. This is not, we need to make the widgets. That's not what we're talking about. This is, the widget maker is going to be overturned. The economy that supports the widget maker is going to be overturned. Everything you know is going to be scattered. That's the context of this parable. It's about being ready. All of these parables are about being ready as Jesus heads to his crucifixion, as the disciples' world is about to be turned upside down, both in the death and resurrection of their teacher, but also the destruction of their city. This is what they have to be ready for. The Romans, who have been okay so far, at bay, not such a big problem, are going to be in their face. There's going to come a time where no Jew is allowed in Jerusalem soon enough. So this is what this is preparing people for. Don't take this lightly. This isn't about investment. This isn't about making widgets. This isn't about making money. This is about what God has entrusted. Maybe you have made money as a human being, as a fleshly being. What's going to happen with what you've been entrusted with? It's not the money. It's the teaching that teaches you what to do with that money. That teaching is the investment that God made, and we'll see if his investment was wise or foolish based on your conduct. That teaching is the deposit, the paradosis, the ordinance, the tradition. And from our perspective, who are removed from Paul, removed from Timothy, it's the parathiki that is committed and untouchable. So it's entrusted as something we cannot mess with, and we have to do something with and about. There is work to do, and the Master is coming to see what we've done with what was handed down and deposited. And he's not talking about the candle stands or the preferred music at your parish. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. I love this way of speaking. 
I remember from my time on the East Coast working at the white shoe firms how seriously everyone takes money. There are two industries that Americans are serious about. They're serious about health care and they're serious about financial services. They are more serious about security in the financial services sector than they are about the U.S. government and the military. That tells you everything you need to know about what this country cares about. It also tells you something about the classical world because nothing changes under the sun. The metaphor that is being used is co-opting that backwards priority of putting the importance of money before everything else. Just like Ezekiel co-opts the metaphor of kingly imagery, which human beings in their backwards mentality give importance to. That's why God usurps it and uses it. Ezekiel is like the Wizard of Oz. You wouldn't believe God if he just said what he had to say, so he puts on a big smoke and fire show, just like the rulers of the earth. And that's exactly what verse 19 is. You're excited and impressed with people who engage in commerce because you worship the dollar. You put in God we trust on the dollar, not because you trust the God of Abraham, but because the dollar is your God. And Matthew is turning it around, because the thing you should fear is not the dollar, or the people who print it, or the gold that backs it. You should fear the one in the Gospel of Matthew who has power over life and death, and who has the power to destroy both the body and the soul in hell. He is the one who is coming to settle the accounts, and it has nothing to do with financial debt. But because you still don't understand the gospel, you still care about the dollar which you worship, the God in whom you trust, and you print it on your dollars. And you get upset when someone says we shouldn't keep it printed on the dollar because that's what you believe. Just like you worship your shopping malls and you want to make sure that the shopping mall holds on to your anthem, Merry Christmas, because the shopping mall is your cathedral. And don't tell me otherwise. Do not say otherwise. My grandfather saw it, and my father saw it. Both men were immigrants. Both were dismayed that Americans worship the dollar. And we are now paying the price. That is why this verse perks our ears. Because we know what it means to have the accounts settled. But someone much mightier and much more terrifying than a wealthy banker is coming to settle the accounts. The way that this chapter co-opts the investment of money and a wonderful party and the things that people enjoy, as opposed to the parables before that were talking about having to leave and flee into the mountains, Jesus so broadly looks at everything and especially hones in on these things that we find so valuable, like you said, Father. I honed in on this phrase after a long time, polin chronon, 
And a long time in the Bible can be a really long time. I was just teaching Ezekiel yesterday. Ezekiel had to lie on his side for 390 days, one day per year of the people's iniquity. So what was 390 years of the people's iniquity? Since Solomon's son Jeroboam split the kingdom. This was the judgment that was coming to the people of Ezekiel's time, 390 years later. When God called Jerusalem to account, it was 390 years later. Also, it was 70 days for the 70 years since Jeremiah began to preach against the city. 70 years seems short. So the master comes back after a long time. I find it interesting because many scholars say that the people of the time of the writing of the New Testament expected Jesus to be returning any moment. I'm not sure because here it says literally the master of those slaves came after a long time. And in biblical terms, a long time is long. It can be generations and centuries, which means that this deposit that's given to us, the work that we're to do with this, it's not our lifetime we're talking about. It's multiple generations even. Now, in the parable, it doesn't work because obviously the master of those slaves doesn't live for more than one generation. But when we think about a long time in biblical terms, it's to the generation yet unborn and to their great-grandchildren that we are investing. And so when we receive this teaching, the investment we must make is with the understanding that this could disappear at any time. This could trail off at any time. One link in the chain, one bad generation can make all of our work vain. The work that we have to make sure that this teaching passes on from generation to generation. That's why I'm grateful for this format of the podcast. Maybe four generations from now, they won't have this technology anymore and the Bible is Literature podcast will be lost. But this exists for not just us, but also the generation yet unborn. The one who had received the five talents came and brought five more talents saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. We touched on this last week. He began with five. He was the one who could carry the most weight. His manager, his master said, Look, you're capable. I'm going to give you something to do. Go do something. And as expected, the capable employee, the capable slave, to be specific, we have to always be specific and use the terminology of the text, the capable slave produced what was expected of him. And the doubling of the five, as we said, indicates that the paradosis was shared with all the nations. So here... This particular slave worked the teaching. This particular slave worked the commandment, did what he was asked to do according to the paradosis, according to the deposit that was handed to him, entrusted to him. He worked, and there was 
a result. There was a return on the master's investment. And the credit goes to the master because the master is the one who made the correct decision to entrust the five talents to him. This also reminds me of the agricultural parables where you put a seed in the ground and you get many, many times that one seed that comes out. That's how seeds work. I mean, if you put one strawberry seed in the ground and you got one strawberry out, that's not how it works. You put it in, you get a plant, and then the plant multiplies the seeds. The idea here is that he is investing in his servants by giving this to them, getting back fruit. So we can think of it in terms of those agricultural metaphors as well, that there's seed that's put in and fruit that's produced, even though here it's talent for talent. The other thing is that when he says, I have gained besides them five talents, he turns those talents to the master. When we earn a salary, we like to think that we are the ones who earned that salary. Okay, fine, God gave us talents. Fine, God gave us a great situation. Fine, God allowed us to get a great education. But then once we put that to good work, we made money from it. So then who does that money go to? Well, it goes to my 401k because I want to buy a house in Mexico. No, that money that was gained goes back to the one who invested in you in the very beginning so that money still belongs to God, even though supposedly it was you who gained it. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. A couple of key points. You can see how throughout the New Testament, our insistence on the correct translation of the Greek pistos becomes extremely useful here in a practical sense, because the word faithful can make sense when you understand it as trust here. He was trustworthy, just like you trust Jesus as in you are going out to work on a construction project, and Jesus says, hold the hammer while I go grab the box of nails. Just trust me, I'll be right back. And then he's gone for 10 minutes. You have to decide whether or not to trust him. That's what faith means. He told you to stand there and hold the hammer. Do you trust him or not? It's that basic. And it's the same mechanism here. I'm going to give you this assignment. Can I trust you to do it? Yes or no? It's practical. It's basic. Remember, it's just like what I was saying at the start of today's program. There's no daylight between the debar and the action. And I always use, by way of example, the beautiful and laudable Jewish custom of exclaiming mitzvah when someone acts correctly, when you see a, quote, good deed. I love that because in one simple expression, when you exclaim mitzvah, you are linking the deed and the command to God himself all in one word when you shout command. We have this in the ordination services of our church. 
when you bring a deacon forward, you shout command. It's the same mechanism because a good work is about to take place and the good work is the command of God and it's God who commands that this man be brought forward. The credit goes to God for the ordination. Who's commanding that you bring the candidate forward? It's the will of God. It's God's will that this person be ordained or that this person be elevated. The point is, you are linking the action with the command, and the command is the will of God, and there's no daylight at any point in that chain going back to God himself. So when you say mitzvah, you are recognizing God himself in the world through his commandment. I've had plenty of awkward conversations with new employees, and they'll say, you can trust me. And I'll say, on a good day, I hope so. On a bad day, I'll say, we'll see. I don't know if I can trust you until the day of reckoning. If it's done the way I said it needed to be done by the day I said it needed to be done, yes, I was wise in trusting you. But if you don't, and you don't warn me ahead of time that this may be a bad idea to trust you, Maybe we need to change the parameters. Maybe I'm being unrealistic. Okay, but I need to know that it's going to get done. That's what shows me whether you're trustworthy or not. When I am handed this scripture, am I faithful or not? This is what Judgment Day is for. <laughs> That's, that, that is the whole concept of Judgment Day, is that there's going to be a time where the book— that we are spending so much time on, on the Bible as Literature podcast, is going to be compared to my actions. And we're going to see, was I faithful to this teaching that was handed to me? Everyone who thinks of themselves as a worthy and faithful and good servant, it's not because you performed one mitzvah. That's only one commandment. You have to be faithful to the entire corpus of commandments as the single commandment that this is what you must follow. Were you faithful to that? The Pharisee is great at fulfilling commandments, but only the few that he really likes to do. And you can see that in an employee. Certain employees, they like to do certain work and they don't like to do other work. The faithful servant is the one who gets precisely the work done that you say is the highest priority not what they love doing the most. A lucky servant is one who loves doing what happens to be the high priority. But the faithful servant takes the master, and I actually prefer the King James translation, the Lord's priorities, the Lord's task, the Lord's job. This is what allows you to be, according to his judgment, good and faithful by which you can then enter into his joy. But it's his judgment that allows you into that joy. It's not in spite of his judgment. Upon his judgment, he declared his servant good and faithful. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. 
You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. This turn of phrase is of importance. It's the second time we've heard it. We had the first slave expand the paradosis. I'm going to keep repeating this, Richard. To the nations, from five to ten, the doubling to everyone. And then we're going to have the judgment of the nations coming up very quickly here in Matthew. That's an emphasis here in chapter 25, the judgment of the Gentiles. We have the doubling of the two into four, the sharing of the parados to the four corners of the earth, the four gospels. It's a beautiful metaphor in the syntax, the structure of the canon with four accounts of the teaching of Jesus Christ. And you have this expression, this turn of phrase, enter into the joy of your master. I want to call this out because the emphasis is on pleasing and satisfying the master. It is the joy of the master that is the goal. Now, this on one level is intuitive because every single person listening to this program, when they go to work tomorrow, or maybe they're listening to the show on the way to work, whatever they think about their employer, they're going to try to please someone in their life because they want something from that person, be it a paycheck, be it a grade, be it affection, especially in a society as devolved as ours, where everything is reduced to the ideology of the merchant class, where the great wisdom that our society supposedly has to offer doesn't come from the university. It comes now from the boardroom, which is a disgrace. I mean, the great thinkers of the classical world were great religious thinkers. They were great philosophers. They were great writers. The great thinkers of the United States are really good at making websites. It's a big joke, Richard. I mean, they're not great thinkers. They're great at making widgets. That's where we're at. These are the people that we want to please and we are taught to please because that's the height of the wisdom in the society. So we've become very much caught up in the cycle of the power of death. We are entering into the joy of the wrong masters. I want to keep repeating this. I do not agree with anyone. And I guarantee you, nobody agrees with me. And I am fine with that because I am committing myself to becoming the slave of Jesus Christ, which is a very disagreeable position to be in, in general, but especially at this time, in history, in this place where we live. But that's the deal. We must choose our master. That's the one choice you can make. And then you have to commit yourself to entering into the joy of your one master. And in Matthew, you can't have two masters. You can't serve God and mammon. You can't serve two masters. And you will always be the slave of a master. That's the whole point of Exodus. God did not liberate us from Egypt 
so that we could be free. We were brought out of bondage in Egypt so that we could become his slaves in the wilderness. We were set free from slavery in the Roman marketplace in Galatians so that we could become God's slaves through Paul's gospel. It's the same mechanism here. So to enter into the joy of the master, to please the master of God's Roman household, is the question. It's what's at stake here. How do you please God? Not by lip service. Lord, Lord, we love you so much. Lord, Lord, we talk about you and we pray to you and we glorify you and look at all the wonderful things we do to lift your name up and blah, blah, blah. He's not interested. He's not interested in your incense and your music and your buildings. He's interested in his mitzvah. He's interested in his commandment and whether you do what he asked you to do. That's what's at stake here. That's how you enter into his joy, not yours. I can't stand it when people start explaining to me why they're a Christian and they talk about the joy they feel. It's a rejection of the Gospel of Matthew. It's not about your joy. It's about the Master's joy. That's why this turn of phrase is so critical, Richard. Having to do this work is no joy. The virgins waiting around all night long is not joy. The servant waiting all night long for his master to come back, that's not joy. It's when the master judges them as being worthy, and then they enter into his joy, like you said, Father, his joy, the joy of the Lord. You make such an important point about which master we choose, because I know what zeal for a master looks like. I've had interns. They want so badly for me to trust them and approve of their work. They'll ask questions. Is this how you want it done? Is that how you want it done? Is this correct? Didn't I give you documentation? Oh, oh, sorry, sorry. I'll go look at that documentation. And they'll spend an entire day going through all the documentation, making sure they've done all their work exactly the way that it was supposed to be done and going back and correcting it and maybe talking to a friend to make sure it's right before they bring it back to me because they want so badly to be told that they are good and trustworthy. They don't say, yeah, you know, I just like doing the work and it brings me joy. Because I might say, I'm happy that you're happy, but I'm not happy because you did it all wrong. You didn't do what I told you. That's the problem. It's not about you being happy. It's about doing the thing that I told you needed to be done. Now, here, if you read, you are faithful over a few things. I will make you a ruler over many things. The amount over which they rule is on a percentage basis, not an absolute basis. The fact that the one with five got five back, the one who got two got two back, the Lord did not look at the number five and the number two. This is really important, and it's so easy for us to gloss over. How did you show yourself faithful with what you had? I have a PhD. It puts me in a different position when it comes to Scripture than it does to somebody who is a computer programmer and went to college and did computer programming and has worked in computer programming their entire life. When it comes to Scripture, I have more 
that I'm responsible for because I had professors that stuffed stuff into my head for 10 years that other people didn't have the opportunity. Now, I can say, well, you know, the real reason why I did it is because it was a joyful experience and I really love scripture and I love languages and it was a great thing to do and I'm really grateful that I got to spend that time. Okay, glad I'm happy now. But what happens on that day when the master returns to see what came of his investment in me? Did I invest that the way that I was supposed to? So if I was given 10, I have to get 10 back. If I'm given two, two back. My kids say, Dad, no, I'm not doing a PhD in Bible. You crazy? Okay, fine. God gives them less. They're responsible for less. But the outcome, if they're faithful with what they received, they receive precisely the same reward. This goes back to the parable of the workers in the marketplace. The ones who agreed to one talent for a full day as opposed to those who agreed to a talent for one hour, they all get one talent. That's how it goes. I can't be angry. I can't say, well, look, I got you five talents. I created the Bible's Literature Podcast with Father Mark, and, and I was a parish council president. And this other person, like, they didn't make a podcast. They aren't parish council president. What's the, you know, how come they get the same reward as me? That's not what God's looking at. That's not what the Lord is looking at. If I gave you a lot, it's because I know you can take a lot, and I know you can do a lot with that. So go do a lot with it. That is the point. If you are given a lot, then you're responsible for a lot. If you're given less, you're responsible for less. But lest you think, well, I wasn't given so much, so I'm going to go back to Netflix, and I'm going to go have another drink with my friends, uh, you're still responsible for that bit. You're not allowed to slack but you aren't allowed to look at the reward of the other person because it might not be the reward that you thought. You get your reward for what you did. You get the results for what you did. And the Lord alone decides, do you enter into his joy or not? Welcome to Matthew 25. That's what Americans should put on their front step. Not welcome, Matts, but welcome to Matthew 25. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.